an initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. I want to open our time in a word of prayer again. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we gather together this evening as part of a culture of death, called and empowered to bring a culture of life, and not just natural life, but even more, that greater supernatural life of your grace that makes us your children. And yet we confess here from the outset that we are tempted to discouragement and despair. And we stand in great need of comfort and encouragement. At the same time, we also need to come to a better understanding and appreciation of this supernaturally infused power that you put into the souls of your children, that virtue of hope. And so help us now and hear us as we pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. Ignatius Loyola, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. What a great patron to celebrate on this, the first day of defending the faith. The presentation this evening is going to focus upon the foundational mystery of hope. And as I mentioned a few minutes ago, it's one of the neglected and underrated virtues. And I think it's true to say, and I'm quoting an author who wrote, man can live about 40 days without food, about three days without water, about eight minutes without air, but not one second without hope. Hope is sort of the air that our soul breathes in order to face the hardships and to overcome all of the downward tuggings that we feel within towards sadness, anger, loneliness. Hope is at the core of our faith and actually emerges from it. And not just our faith as New Testament believers and Catholic Christians, but hope is embedded at the heart of the faith of ancient Israel. The Old Testament words for hope meant to look forward with eager anticipation to what God would do. Hope in God is the constant refrain of the Psalms, as well as a command that is based upon the fact that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is said to be the hope of Israel. Even Job in his agony declared, though he slay me, Yet will I trust him. Yet will I hope in him could also be the translation. Wait for the Lord. Wait upon the God of Israel. The psalmist says repeatedly in the Psalms. And remember the Psalms, that one book is the only book that the church prays every single day of the year, 24-7 around the clock and around the world. It isn't a book of the New Testament, but rather a book of the Old, and it's a prayer book that is meant to enkindle within us especially hope. I wait for the Lord. My whole person waits. I wait in his word, we read in Psalm 130. So hope is at the heart of what it means to be a child of God, what it means to be a member of the family of God, what it means to be in a covenant with God. Hope is something that we need desperately. Why? Because we face trials. We face tests. All of us do. And how we respond to those tests, how we respond to those trials, is going to define not only what we become as persons, but where we will be for all eternity. 
And so whenever we're in a situation where we're called upon to enkindle hope, we really need to fix our eyes upon the Lord because, let's face it, there are many people today who speak of hope, the audacity of hope, who don't mean the same thing as we do when we speak of it as a theological virtue that is supernaturally rooted in our own identity as children of the Most High God. For our hope is not in the political process. Our hope is not in Wall Street and the economic system. Our hope is not based upon any of the sociological structures or healthcare delivery systems. Our hope is rooted in God. Our hope is what orders our life to an eternal end that is Trinitarian, that is almost beyond belief, and yet it's all true. And so we have to always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks us for a reason, a logos, for the hope that is within us. Because this is not something that we came to naturally, by our own philosophical reason or by our own scientific achievements. This hope is part of the gift of God's grace that transformed us, we who were creatures, into being nothing less than children of God. So when you hear people talk about hope these days, you got to listen carefully. Because a lot of people say, I hope, for what? To win the lottery. To be the next American Idol. Some people's hopes are set much lower. I just hope to find work. I hope to get a job. And in this economy, you can pray for those people because that hope is difficult sometimes. In fact, I just came across an article on msn.com. I'm not recommending any websites here, but I had to share this. It's just, I found it yesterday. These are actual responses to various job interview questions that professional job interviewers compiled and sent into MSN. Hiring managers shared memorable interview responses. And what I would like to suggest is that this is the wrong way to respond. Why did you leave your last job? The man replied, I have a problem with authority. <laughs> Tell us about a problem you had with a coworker in your previous job and how you resolved it. The resolution was, we were both fired. <laughs> Do you have any questions to ask of me before the interview was up? If I get a job offer, how long do I have before I have to take the drug test? <laughs> and finally, use three adjectives to describe yourself. I hate questions like that. <laughs> we are often confronted with questions. We have to be ready to give an answer. You know, not just in a job interview, but in our own life circumstances. And I want to propose to you that we have, in Scripture and in the church's teaching, clear directions on how to live on the basis of hope. For instance, the Catechism in paragraph 1817 explains hope so simply and profoundly. Hope is the theological virtue by which we desire the kingdom of heaven and eternal life as our happiness. Placing our trust in Christ's promises and relying not on our own strength, boy, will that prove to be a key that unlocks the truth of hope. Relying not on our own strength, but on the help of the grace of the Holy Spirit. Hope is in the supernatural order what responds to the natural aspiration to happiness. We all want to be happy, and we're all looking for the sources of happiness. And yet hope is what directs us to the only proper end for which we were all made, and that is the kingdom of heaven, eternal life. And I would encourage you to spend some time, either this weekend or in the next few weeks, in the catechism, from 1817 on, those paragraphs do an incredible job of clarifying what we mean by hope. 
In the sacred scriptures, I've already cited a number of Old Testament passages. I would like to just focus upon a few of the New Testament texts that give us insight as well. Paul is especially an apostle of hope, and most particularly in the book of Romans, where we read about Abraham. We're going to return to him in just a couple of minutes. But in Romans 4.18, St. Paul writes, In hope, Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. What does it mean to hope against hope? Well, when you're facing something that appears to be just downright hopeless, what do you do? You hope even more. You trust God more than you trust yourself. And we're going to see how God graced and empowered Abraham to do just that. In Romans 8, Paul talks about hope and how it produces this endurance that enables us to reach the glory for which we were made. In Ephesians 1, we also hear Paul emphasizing, we who first hoped in Christ have been destined and appointed to live to the praise of his glory having the eyes of your hearts enlightened so that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you and what are the glorious riches of his inheritance in the saints. You see, we're not the only ones who receive an inheritance. Paul says that when we achieve what it is we are hoping for, heaven, we're going to discover that God takes delight in us and considers us to be a part of his own inheritance. Such is the love of of a creator who is so much more than a creator, he is truly our father. The book of Hebrews is perhaps the most, it's the densest New Testament book for understanding hope. And that's also another book that I hope to return to as we consider Abraham. But when we speak of hope, I want to clarify and make a distinction here. Because we are to be hopeful, which is not the same thing as being optimists. Optimism is a personality trait. Optimism is a kind of disposition that certain people seem to possess, just by nature. You know, the glass is half full. But optimism is not the same thing as hope, because optimism looks around and tries to find the good circumstances and then simply looks for more, whereas hope actually thrives in bad circumstances. Hope actually matures only when it faces trials. And hope is ordered to something even greater still, and that is divine charity, the Holy Spirit poured into our hearts. There are two contrasting figures. The rich young ruler who came to Jesus, and what did he say? What must I do to have eternal life? Keep all the commandments. This is what I've done since my youth. Then give away all that you have to the poor Come and follow me. And what happened? That rich young ruler went away sad. Why? Because he was focusing on his own riches, which were finite and temporal, instead of focusing in faith and hope upon the infinite riches that are far greater that Jesus was offering him. So often we cling to the finite and the temporal goods of this world like a little child whose hands are filled with pennies. And it won't let go, even though his daddy wants to fill those hands with $100 bills. God loves us more than we love ourselves. He wants for us more than we want for ourselves. And so he gives us the seed of grace in faith, so that we learn to trust him more than we trust ourselves. And then that matures in hope, so that we will endure whatever comes, in order to see that here we have no lasting city. Here we have no enduring inheritance, only in God, only in heaven. The other figure I'd like to consider just for a moment is St. Therese, one of my favorites, the little flower. And when you read her own spiritual autobiography, you know, you're tempted like some people perhaps at first glance to put her up on a pedestal. But she was insistent that she was no, you know, there's no such thing as plaster saints. She was a real person who had real struggles. But through those struggles, she learned to pray and trust God so much that she could say, what? God gives me whatever I want because I want whatever he gives. That's faith that is shaped by hope and perfected in love. 
That's what we need, especially in these times. We are facing circumstances in our culture, not just in America, but throughout the Western civilization. In fact, Europe is in a much deeper and steeper decline than you could possibly imagine, just if you were reading the paper. I've been over there, and it's downright bewildering to see how quickly one generation can lose the faith. It's also a wake-up call to us. But I want to propose to you that this is not the darkest hour. We're not faced with the greatest evils. I remember 9-11 back in 2001. I spent about 10 hours in total bewilderment at what I watched and then just re-watched again and again throughout that day. I'm grateful because I'm a member of a parish that has perpetual adoration. And that evening, I had my hour assigned. And I went there, and I was grateful to be alone with our Lord. And I got on my knees, and I poured out my heart. I mean, I spilled my guts. I'm like, God, how could you let this happen? Thousands of innocent people. These murderers, these mass murderers, aren't martyrs, they're mass murderers. And as I just sat there in silence, having poured out my heart, I was reminded that this was really not the darkest day in human history. The darkest day in human history is the day when humans perpetrated the greatest evil against the one who offered the greatest good. And that is what we call Good Friday. The crucifixion of the Son of God is truly the greatest evil ever perpetrated. And yet God didn't just bring good out of it. God showed me that night that it was precisely the greatest evil that he transformed into nothing less than the greatest good that secured the salvation of the whole human race, the whole world. And it wasn't just a one-time affair. It wasn't just, you know, that event and that's all no, this is the pattern that God has put into place so that we can put our hope in him, that we can place our trust in him and not in our politicians or our economists or even our priests, even our popes. I mean, Pope John Paul and Pope Benedict would be the first to say, don't trust us, trust Christ. He is the one who said to Peter on this rock, I will build my church. He didn't tell Peter to go build me a church. Peter was just the tool. And the infallible lover of our souls, the omnipotent Savior, he is the builder of the church, he is the owner of the church, and he is the object not only of our faith and love, but also especially of our hope. So we have to make an act of faith, but also an act of hope and love to be like Jesus, but also to be like Our Lady. Because she was called not only to give consent to the crucifixion of her son, she was called to give consent to stand at his side in those dark hours. And what was it that God was asking of her? Not only to join her will to her sons for his own sacrificial self-offering, but to unite her will to God's, because God was calling her to become the spiritual mother of the very people who were crucifying her son, the very disciples who abandoned him in his hour of need. We all know that external suffering can be horrific, but I think we've all lived enough to know that the interior suffering of the soul exceeds the exterior suffering of the bodily senses. We can't even begin to imagine what Our Lady of Sorrows went through at the foot of the cross. But she went through it because of hope that was ordered to a divine love that isn't really hard, it's just humanly impossible. We can't love like that. Mary couldn't even love like that, apart from the supernatural grace and divine power of Almighty God. So we are sometimes bewildered by suffering. We are sometimes challenged to rediscover hope. And as I said, not only internal sufferings are greater than external sufferings, but as a parent now, for 26 years, I have discovered that what's worse than my own internal sufferings 
are my kids' sufferings. When they are suffering physically, I feel helpless, and I'm tempted to become hopeless. But I've got to remind myself again and again, I am not their ultimate father. God is. And I tell God, with all due respect, if I were an all-powerful father, I wouldn't put my kids through this. But I don't love as much as you do. I'm not as wise as you are. So I believe, help thou my unbelief, I hope against all hope. And then when our children grow up and go through the internal sufferings that we have known, and we, there, there are no Band-Aids, there are no doctors, there are no cures, no quick and easy fix. This is what God calls us to in order to appreciate what it is we must go through to become what God has made us for. I want to identify two key principles that we need to recognize in order to grow in hope, in order to understand hope. Because you think things are really bad, right? I mean, most people I talk to, you know, they point to the recession. You know, they might be discouraged by last year's election results. They might be discouraged by the general trend in terms of the morals of our country, in television and the internet. But I want to give you this assurance. Things are much worse than you think. <laughs> and they always have been. Because we have always been tempted to reduce the evil that we face to the elections that we've lost, to the economic downturns that we're enduring, to the social circumstances that just seem so bad. You know, to the loss in the Super Bowl or in the World Series or, I'm a Pirate fan, you've got to really commiserate with me. I mean, we're about to set the world record in sports, modern sports, for the most consecutive losing seasons. Things are much worse than you think. <laughs> what do I mean by that? Evil ultimately has a greater reality than we discern. Our Lord must have known that because he made it the seventh and last petition in the prayer that he taught his disciples. Deliver us from evil. But when you look at it in the Greek, it is more literally translated how? Deliver us from the evil one. We're talking about a source of evil that goes beyond politics, economics, warfare. It goes beyond, you know, Islam, it goes beyond communism, it goes beyond jihad, it goes beyond anything we've ever experienced through our senses or through our reason. We're talking about a vast, powerful, intelligent spirit who took out a lot of other vastly superior and powerful intelligent spirits who are now intent upon taking us out and down to hell forever. And I mean, if you're tempted to despair, look at what our Lord promised. Greater is he that is within us than he that is within the world. Notice he doesn't say, greater are you than he that is within the world. It's greater is he who is within you than he who is within the world. We are no match for the devil, but the devil is no match for our father, our dad, our Abba in heaven. And he has sent his son to fill us with his spirit, the spirit of sonship, to mature us as children. Things are much worse than we think because evil is much darker and more powerful than we ever can imagine. The flip side of that is this. You know, we hear people talking about some of the good things that we find. In the church today, there are a lot of good signs. I mean, we have just lived through the pontificate of one of the most amazing popes in church history, John Paul II, some call him John Paul the Great. And the Holy Spirit had him pass the torch on to then Cardinal Ratzinger, now our beloved Pope Benedict XVI. We're still in the process of discovering the legacy of John Paul the Great with the theology of the body and so much more. This has really become his legacy for, in a certain sense, helping us to rediscover the church's teachings about 
the moral law and the natural order and what purity and fidelity and chastity are all about and how God has inscribed love into our bodies as the language that we can see when we truly understand ourselves. But I would propose to you that if the theology of the body is the legacy of John Paul II, then this work of Pope Benedict's that recently got published, Jesus of Nazareth, this represents the fruit of a lifetime of study in prayer from a scholar, from a pastor, from a man who knows himself to be a child of God. This book could revolutionize biblical theology as much as the theology of the body revolutionizes moral theology. We're still a little too close to it. I remember after the theology of the body teachings were done in 85, I got so excited in 86 as a brand new Catholic. I would carry this material around in a notebook telling my friends and professors, have you read this stuff? And they're like, oh, that's just Wednesday audiences. Five, 10, 15 years later, people are going back and discovering those weren't just Wednesday audiences. There's gold in them, our hills. Well, it's been less than five years than, since Jesus of Nazareth came out, but that book is going to restore the vision of faith for reading God's word and trusting it like children and seeing the depth and the profundity and the power that we need to experience. He also just so happens to be the author of a second encyclical entitled, Saved in Hope, Spay Salve. And so he has inspired us in choosing our theme in so many ways. There are many other signs of hope. There are many other optimistic indicators. But I want to propose to you that things are much better than we realize, not because we just had John Paul II or now have Pope Benedict XVI, but precisely because of the tests and the challenges we face. Because they come to us from God who is our loving Father. We tend to confuse matters if we don't see them in the light of the covenant. We know that God has made a covenant with us and it's more than a contract. A contract involves the simple exchange of property, goods and services, but in a covenant, what you exchange is your life. Persons enter into communion. I am yours and you are mine. And so God has made a covenant with us to become our father, to make us his children. And from the covenant, we know that there are blessings and there are curses, and we greatly prefer the blessings and we dread the curses. That's human nature. But we don't even understand the curses. When God sends punishments, it isn't because he stopped loving us or because he started loving us less. It's precisely because he can't stop loving us that he sends these curses of the covenant that we read about in Scripture. That might seem a little counterintuitive at first, but just think about it in terms of your own experience or mine. I don't punish the neighbor's kids. I punish my kids. Why? It's not because the neighbor ki neighbor's kids are so well-behaved. It's because my kids are my kids. I love them. And so I punish them, not perfectly as God does, but lovingly as a true father attempts. And so when God sends our way difficulties, challenges, sufferings, externally, internally, our own or our loved ones, personally, socially, politically, these are all a way that God is testing our faith and giving us a wake-up call. Listen to what Hebrews 5 tells us in verse 7. Though a son, he, Jesus, learned obedience through what he suffered and thus became the source of eternal salvation. What was that? Though a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered and that's how he became the source of eternal salvation. For what purpose? To exempt us from suffering, right? No. To enable us to suffer in love in a way that we can't on our own. To endow our meager suffering with a much vaster value and power than it would ever possess on its own. In the book of Hebrews chapter 12, the suffering we endure is explained in terms of fatherly discipline, which is an expression of divine love. In fact, Hebrews 12 goes so far as to say that if you're not disciplined, if you're not suffering, if you're not tried, then you might be illegitimate. You're not a true child of God. It's the very opposite of what the world has trained us how to think. And yet it's the very way in which the Word of God teaches us to believe 
and a hope. In the ancient Jewish rabbinic tradition, Abraham was the model of faith and of hope and love. And the early church fathers picked up on this as well. When you read the Abraham narrative in Genesis 12, it runs all the way through chapter 22. And you realize that God is not just favoring this man, he is testing him. In fact, the rabbis count 10 different trials, 10 different episodes, 10 different tests that Abraham had to take in order to grow up spiritually, in order to endure what it was that God sent him to strengthen, to toughen his faith. And as you move out of Genesis into Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, the rabbis point out that when you study Israel's experience in the wilderness wanderings for 40 years, guess how many trials Abraham's offspring had to endure? Count them up, and there are 10. So as they read about their forefather in the faith, they can see a role model for their own struggles. They might understand spiritually why it is that God allows his children to go through these tests. Now, I'm a professor. Testing is part of my job description. But I test my students because I don't know whether or not they've learned the lessons. And after they take the tests, I discover what grade they've earned. But since God knows everything, God doesn't test us to find out what we've learned or what we haven't. It's almost the exact opposite. God tests us not to find out what he doesn't know, because he knows everything, but to show us what we don't know. We don't know how weak we are. We don't know how bad things are. But we also don't know how strong his love is in our lives. Not until we feel the weight of our weakness do we allow our hearts to ascend out of the desire of faith, hope, and love to endure and to accept whatever he sends our way. These tests confront us with our own weakness, but they present us with the offer of God's grace as long as we don't give up our trust. I want to talk for a moment about how it is that we ought to pray when we're facing these kinds of trials. Because there is an inspired prayer book that we can turn to. I've already mentioned it. It's the book of Psalms. 150 prayers. Some are individual, some are communal. But David was the one that God handpicked to teach the world to pray, and to do so in song, to do so alone, as he often did when he faced trials, or to do so together with the family of God, the community of faith. But I have taught the course on Psalms now for several years at a, re, at a local seminary. And what I've discovered, in fact, what I enjoy pointing out to my seminarians is that scholars identify over 40% of the Psalms are what they categorize as psalms of lament, or more precisely, psalms of complaint. Psalms of complaint? That's a little confusing. What do you mean, complaint? We would never think about complaining to God. Well, then again, maybe not. But I think the confusion is not in the psalms or the prayers of David, but our own understanding. Because there's a big difference between complaining on the one hand and grumbling on the other. Israel in the wilderness was murmuring. They were grumbling. They were complaining about God, but they weren't complaining to him. On the other hand, David is the one who gives us more of these psalms of lament. David is the one who teaches us the psalms of complaint. Why? For a simple reason. Because you don't complain to someone unless you trust them. You don't complain to someone unless you believe that they are capable of doing something about the difficulty. And the very complaint is a childlike expression of a kind of parental trust. I can't do this. But instead of turning my back on my father, I cry out to him and say, I have done all that I can, but I've fallen so short, so you're going to have to make up what I lack. You're going to have to give me what I need, and I trust you to do that because you are my Father. And that is the content of our faith. But it's also the content of our hope as well as our love. And so we have got to be able to pray like the psalmists. 
I dare you to pray Psalm 44. Turn with me to Psalm 44. It's one of those psalms of lament, but it's very different than most of the others because in Psalm 44, the psalmist is describing the afflictions, the hard times that he faces, but in a very different key. In Psalm 44, you have the confession of faith in verse 4, Thou art my God and my, my King. You ordained victories for Jacob. And then he rehearses how God has delivered the forefathers in past ages. But, verse 9, but you have cast us off and abased us. You have not gone out with our armies. You've made us turn back from the foe. You've made us like sheep for slaughter. You've scattered us among the nations. Why? Verse 17, all this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten thee or been false to your covenant. Excuse me, there must be an editorial error there. There must be a missing word. All this has come upon us, though we have forgotten thee, or because we've been false to your covenant. No, the psalmist is saying that you have sent us suffering and affliction not because of our infidelities. There are many other psalms that describe that. But even those who've been faithful are called to suffer. And sometimes, especially those who are faithful, because God tests those whom he loves, especially his only beloved son. Though a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered and thus became the source of eternal salvation for all of us who believe and follow him. So the psalmist is teaching us to pray in a way that we really deep down don't think we can get away with. And yet it's precisely the, the kind of prayer that our God longs for and enjoys the most. It isn't this kind of, you know, stoic spirituality where we just kind of keep a stiff upper lip. We kind of just keep on going. We don't murmur. We don't whine. God knows we're weak. We're children. And so when we pray from the heart, we are free to complain to him, not about him, to others, but to him. And then you'll find that the characteristic, the characteristic feature of the Psalms of Lament is the climax, the conclusion. And that's where the one who is praying, typically David, says, I will tell everybody about you. I will proclaim thy name to your congregation. Why? Because I called on you in the day of trouble, and you delivered me, and so I will glorify you, as he says in Psalm 50. This, is this has got to become the pattern of our prayer if we're not praying as slaves, but as beloved children. This is the expression of hope. Hope is expressed in prayer. And not just the prayer of individuals, but especially the prayer of God's family. The one thing we need to do is believe, but that's faith. How do we express our faith in difficult times? We worship. We put our trust in God. We pray individually. We worship liturgically. And what a difference it makes. I've already mentioned Abraham. Let's turn to the book of Romans for a moment and just look at what Paul says about our father in faith. How in hope he hoped against all hope that he would become what? The father of many nations. The father of many nations? This guy hadn't even become the father of a single son. What was God up to? Taking a man like Abram and lifting him up as the role model for all the world to see what God the Father wanted for us, his family. First of all, he called this man by the name Abram, which means what in Hebrew? Exalted father. And yet here is Abram at the ripe old age of 99, and what? He doesn't have any child, not through Sarah. The only child he has is through this affair that he had with Hagar the Egyptian, a concubine that he took. And in Genesis 17, God says, no, it's not through Ishmael. It's not through the illicit relations you had with this Egyptian concubine. And so in Genesis 17, God says this. A year from now, after you've been circumcised, <laughs> need I say more? I mean, you talk about a test of faith. 
Sarah will give birth. And he laughed. It might have been a laugh of unbelief, but it became the laughter of joy because it became the child's name, Hitzok. Isaac means laughter, joy. But what is it that God was up to? Taking a man, naming him father, exalted father, and then renaming him what? Avraham, Abraham, not just Abram. What does Abraham mean? Father of a multitude. Can you imagine, you know, Abraham going to the market and people are calling him, hey, exalted father, Avram. No, 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 not anymore. Now it's Avraham. It's father of a multitude. <laughs> what is this, you know? A form of, you know, senility, dementia? You know, what has gotten into this guy's head? And yet he trusted God. He put his faith and his hope in the Lord. And the Lord used him to show us what true fatherhood is. Because we think we know from the natural order what fatherhood really is. What is it? Well, it's physical, right? It's gendered, you gotta be a male. It's also genital, it's sexual, and hopefully it's marital, right? Right, except for God. Because God doesn't have a body. There's no gender within the deity. He has no genitalia. There are no sexual acts, only in the fertility cults of the pagan religions surrounding Israel. And yet that doesn't make God less of a father, but infinitely more and the only perfect father. Why did God take Abram and then change his name to Abraham, father of a multitude, and yet, him, and, and yet allow him to live an entire century childless to show the world what fatherhood and faith is, to show the world the supernatural mystery of a fatherhood that surpasses the merely biological. It unveils the theological. That when we trust God through our trials, he will bless us and empower us to become his children, to become a part of his family, because we have learned to trust like Abraham. Through the 10 trials that Abraham underwent, and I want to tell you, if you read the Abraham narrative closely, every one was worse than the one before. Every one was harder. What was the 10th and final trial? Abraham, yes, here I am. Take your son and offer him as a sacrifice. But that's not all God said, because if that's all God said, take your son and offer him as a sacrifice, I know what Abraham would have said. Oh, Ishmael, where did you go? <laughs> but he said, no, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and offer him as a holocaust. And yet at the same time, he'd already promised Abraham, it'll be through Isaac that I will bless all the nations. And by the time Abraham has trusted God, taken the three-day journey to Moriah, had Isaac actually carry the wood all the way to the top of Moriah. This was no three-year-old. He was strong enough to carry the wood all the way to the top. That's why the rabbis reached a consensus. He was at least 17. Some say he was even older, in which case he could certainly have prevented a father figure who was over 100 years old from following through. Not only the father, but the beloved son, both gave willing consent to this sacrifice. A father who offers his only beloved son and the only beloved son who carries the wood to the very top of the hill called Moriah. It's actually a mountain range. One of the most prominent hills of the Moriah range is what we know as what? Calvary. You see, because God the Father suspended that sacrifice once he had passed the, the test of faith, hope, and love. Now that I've seen that you trust me, that you love me more than anything, what does God do? He rewards Abraham's faith with a covenant oath. By myself have I sworn, says the Lord, through you and your seed shall all the nations be blessed. Now that's a curious statement and an interesting episode because elsewhere in Genesis, you hear a lot about blessing. It's one of the most frequently used words in the patriarchal narratives. But who is the one typically given the blessing? The blessor is typically a father figure. And who are the recipients of the blessing? Who are the blessees throughout Genesis? The children, especially the firstborn son, but the others as well. Only in this episode, 
Who is now becoming the blessor? God. And who are the blessees? All the nations of the earth. Abraham has just exemplified to the world the mystery of divine fatherhood that isn't sexual, it isn't biological, it doesn't depend upon natural processes, but upon supernatural faith, hope, and love. It purifies our understanding of the meaning and mystery of what it means to be a father and what it means to be sons and daughters, especially when it comes to being sons and daughters of God. And so the trials of faith that we face are not proof that we might not be children of God. They're proof that we are, that he's disciplining us. He's putting us in over our heads to show us how weak we are so that we might discover how strong he is if we let him. This is true for Abraham. This is true for his offspring. This is true all the way down through the ages until the present time. I want to just quote a little bit as I begin to wrap up from Pope Benedict. Because in this amazing encyclical, Saved in Hope, he clarifies something that is really crucial. The definition that you find in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. The RSV renders it, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. I memorized that back in high school. But it wasn't until I read this encyclical and then looked again at the Greek and realized that that's a really bad translation that is derived not from the Greek, but from Martin Luther's rejection of the plain sense of the text. Pope Benedict writes, to Luther, who was not particularly fond of the letter to the Hebrews, the concept, the word used here, substance, meant nothing. What does Pope Benedict mean? That the definition of faith here is that faith is the substance of things hoped for, not merely the assurance, it isn't something that we're just kind of sure that we will eventually get. It is the substance of what we already possess. By faith, we are united to God as our Father, to Christ his Son, to the power of the Holy Spirit. By faith, we are united to the saints. By faith, we now share eternal life. By faith, the whole Trinity, the Holy Trinity comes to dwell within us. It isn't something that is just far off, but we're certain to get it. Faith, he says, is the substance of things hoped for. And as a result, we have a different understanding. Pope Benedict says it rather gently. This in itself is not incorrect, but it is not the meaning of the text. <laughs> because the Greek term used does not have the subjective sense of conviction, but the objective sense of proof and substance. He's not denying the fact that faith and hope go together, but he's pointing out how Luther collapsed hope into faith. This becomes the basis of the Reformation and so much confusion. Because what is the object of our faith? The Word of God. Whatever we find in the Word of God, we believe it because God is our Father and He has spoken and He can't deceive or be deceived. We're His children. We trust Him more than we trust our own logic and science. That's faith. Whatever we find in the Word of God, we know to be true, even if we can't prove it. Because faith is that proof. Faith unites us to that substance. And yet at the same time, it unites us to the very substance of what it is we hope for. Now Luther had a different understanding. It wasn't the objective reality of God's mysteries that we are united to by faith. For Luther, it was the personal assurance of salvation. And so you sometimes find his descendants asking you, are you saved? And you will say, well, you know, I'm baptized. I am following Christ as a disciple. I am saved as a Catholic Christian through the grace of God, working by the sacraments, through the Holy Spirit. I'm being saved. I hope to be saved. No, do you have assurance? If you were to die tonight and go before God and he were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? Do you have total certainty that you will go to heaven? Well, I have faith. No, you must be certain. And what Pope Benedict points out is that you've just, you just confused these two very distinct virtues. 
Faith knows to be true whatever God has spoken. Hope is what applies that to my own life. But Luther said, no, unless you know you're saved, you're not saved. And so this notion of assurance is what caused the eclipse of hope. We as Catholics have the, certain, the certainty of faith that whatever God has revealed is true. But when it comes to our own salvation, it's not the same thing. Why? Because nowhere in the Bible do I ever read Scott Hahn's name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. If it was written in the scriptures, I would have the certainty of faith because God's word is the object of faith. What I do read is whosoever believes shall not perish but have everlasting life. But how do I know whether I believe? You know, they say once saved, always saved. If you don't fall away. This is where the virtue of hope comes in. This is where the virtue of hope went out the window. Because faith unites us to the substance, the reality of God's own life. And yet hope is what operates through God's own power. What is it that God gave to Abraham so that he would be assured not only with faith but hope? When Abraham offered Isaac, what was the reward for his obedience? In Genesis 22, verse 16, by myself have I sworn. It's not just a promise anymore. It is a covenant oath. What's the difference? For us in the modern world, there really isn't one because oath is like legal ritualism. But listen to Hebrews 6, verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and multiply. And thus Abraham, having patiently endured, obtained the promise. Men indeed swear by someone greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. In other words, God isn't the only one who swears an oath to strengthen his promise. We do it ourselves. If I give you a promise and you give me one, we've got a contract. But if I swear an oath and you do too, we've entered into what? A covenant. By definition, sacred kinship. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he interposed with an oath so that through two unchangeable things, what are the two unchangeable things? The word of promise and then God's own covenant oath. So that through two unchangeable things in which it's impossible that God should prove false, we who have fled for refuge might have encouragement to seize the hope set before us. You see, the word of promise is the object of faith. But God's oath to give us what we need, to make up for what we lack, and for Abraham at 99, he lacked a lot, especially when it came to natural paternity. But God swore the oath and gave him a son. And when he tested him to offer the son, he rewarded him with an even greater oath that Abraham would become the father of many nations, not just one son who barely survived the test. That's mind-blowing. God has heaped impossibilities upon impossibilities so that when he acts, the whole world will know that had to be God, not Abraham. He gave Abraham a promise, and that word is the object of his faith, but then he rewarded him with an oath to renew his covenant, and that is what gave Abraham not just faith but hope. Now, just incidentally, has anybody here taken very much Latin? What is the Latin word for covenant oath? That's right, sacramentum. Interesting, because when the early Romans like, you know, Pliny the Younger, who wrote to the Emperor Trajan, got around to describing what the Christians did on the Lord's Day, early on Sunday morning. Guess how he described it? He described how they would gather early in the morning and sing hymns of praise to Christ as God, and then they would swear an oath. And the term he used was sacramentum. And then they would bind themselves not to sin. What in the world was he talking about? He was talking about the Mass, and how the Mass is divided up into two parts. We have the liturgy of the Word and the liturgy of the Eucharist, the liturgy of the sacrament. 
all seven sacraments consist of the Word of God followed by the sacramentum. The Word of God renews the promises that He is our Father, that we are His children, if only believe, we believe. And what do we say? We believe. Help thou our unbelief. But how does God help us in our unbelief? How does God help us by transforming weak faith into strong faith and hope? Through the oaths of the covenant, through the sacraments. I want to conclude by reading one of my favorite passages from my favorite apostle, St. Paul. You know, we just finished the year of St. Paul almost exactly a month ago. I went through about three days of grieving. St. Paul is an amazing man. But what really troubled me years ago was the discovery that he's also a Catholic. <laughs> In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he says something that is really commonsensical. Verse 12, therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. We know life's lessons, pride goeth before a fall. That's just paraphrasing Paul. Why? Verse 13, for no temptation... No trial has overtaken you that is not common to man. You know, sometimes we think, you know, no one has ever suffered like I have, you know. Paul is saying, get over it, you know. You're not that unique. People have suffered the same way and worse. No temptation or trial has overtaken you that isn't common to man. God is faithful and will not let you be tempted beyond your strength. But with the temptation or trial, he will also provide the way of escape. The way of escape. Oh, good. So we're not going to have to undergo the trial? No. He'll provide the way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. So he doesn't spoil his kids. He doesn't spare us suffering. He empowers us to suffer like Christ did. Because love is what transforms suffering into a sacrifice. But how does God do it? He always provides the way of escape. Paul tells us. But what is the way of escape? Well, most modern English translations are a little confusing here because there's a paragraph break before verse 14. In fact, in my version, there's actually a subheading suggesting that Paul is introducing an entirely new subject. But that's strange because the very next verse begins, therefore, my beloved. And typically, when you begin a sentence with therefore, you're not introducing a new subject. You're drawing a conclusion based upon the subject that you've been discussing. I would propose to you that's what Paul is doing. Therefore, my beloved, shun the worship of idols. When you face difficulties and trials and hardships, don't turn to drugs, don't turn to alcohol, don't turn to internet porn, don't turn to all of the addictions that are idols. Those are broken crutches. I'm speaking as the sensible men. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Well, yes, Paul, it is, and we believe that Eucharistic theology, but what does that have to do with this? You just said no temptation has overtaken you that isn't common to man. God is faithful and will not yet let you be tempted beyond your strength. But with the temptation, with the trial, he will always provide the way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, don't turn to idols, I'm talking to sensible men. What should you turn to? What is the way of escape that God has provided to empower us to endure in love what sufferings we face to transform that suffering into a holy sacrifice? I remember last year at Defending the Faith, I pointed out something that should have been obvious to me, but it wasn't, until Father Venois pointed out that if you had been there at Calvary, you would never have described a sacrifice. The Jews standing there, even as devoted disciples, were only capable of seeing a Roman execution. Perhaps the martyrdom of a hero, but not a sacrifice, because it took place outside of the walls of Jerusalem, far from the temple. There were no altars, there were no priests, and so there's no sacrifice. And yet, the early church came to recognize that what took place at Calvary was a sacrifice, and why? Because what had previously occurred in the upper room when he had taken the bread and said, this is my body which is given for you. And he took that chalice and said, this cup is the blood of a new and everlasting covenant which is poured out for many for the remission of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. It was the love of the Eucharist that transformed the suffering of Calvary into the most perfect sacrifice. And it's that same Eucharist 
The cup of blessing which we bless, the bread which we break, is a participation in the body and blood of Christ. It unites us to a person who has endured. Though a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered and transformed that suffering into a holy sacrifice. Why? Because of his faith, hope, and charity. Because of the gift of his spirit that endows us to hope against hope. I want to tell you that the darkest hour is before dawn. But what we're looking for here is not reducible to a new political victory. What we're looking for is not the Republican Party, but the kingdom of God. What we're looking for is not just the U.S., but the whole Catholic family that doesn't just reach around the world, it stretches all the way from earth to heaven. And the saints who've gone before us are that cloud of witnesses who have endured through hope to the point that their love was purified in order to enter into the presence of God. That's why we suffer because suffering is what transforms us into people who can live and love like God. Otherwise, we will enter into the presence of God and be burned to a crisp. Our God is a consuming fire, and that fire is passionate love. And until we allow that love to transform us as little children into people who love like God, we'll never be able to live in God and feel at home. This is what we have as a reason for hope. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. An initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com Be transformed by the renewal of your mind.